each, as believers, as children of God, have been given a type of life that is different than our mortal type of life. It's an eternal, an immortal type of life that will remain forever. That life needs to have a habitat that is conducive to it, and the purpose for which the church was created was to provide that habitat. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. We are currently in a series called Commissional Church. Today, Tori is talking about what the church is, along with its purpose and function. Church is not an organization, but rather a living organism. And once we understand this key idea, we can then look at what habitat is needed for the church to thrive. Here is Tori Bjorkland, president of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship in Co-Missional Church, Part 2. Well, I've been in the midst of a series about the church. I'm calling this series Co-Missional Church. Kind of a play on words there. So we talk about the Great Commission, and when you think about the Conjugation there, co being shared and mission, and so I hyphenated co dash mission to really focus on the idea of a shared mission. I'm going to talk more about that actually in the next session. Um, so the next week I will, Lord willing, be teaching and I'll cover more about the Great Commission. I do want to cover today. I want to talk about the purpose and the function of the church. And I want to start with John, the book of John, chapter 17. Sometimes it's referred to as the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying. It isn't in the other Gospels, but it's a very intimate time of Jesus speaking with his Father in prayer And the thing I want us to notice, that he is praying for us. I don't know if you've ever, as you've read John 17, ever taken that as a prayer for you. And it's not just for you individually, but for us corporately. And uh, we'll we'll look at that. There's a real important aspect here that I I really kind of want to focus on. So Jesus starts out, chapter 17, verse 1, praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. My translation, by the way, it doesn't use these and thous and everything, except when somebody's praying. The translation is a lot of these and thous, so you have to bear with those um, if you're not used to these and thous. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to him, I'm sorry, to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had, 
with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. And now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed, and thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. All things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So I want to focus on that part of it. I want you to notice a few things here. Everything that's mine is yours. Everything that's yours is mine. That's in verse 10 there. And then in verse 11, he's asking that they be one as even we are one. Now, up to this point, it may seem as though he's speaking about the disciples specifically. And that's fine. I mean, that's what we would understand if we were to, to read up to that point. And so he's continuing to talk about his disciples. While I was with them, verse 12, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished except for the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is true. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So this, by the way, we'll see him doing that in what we refer to as the Great Commission when we look at that a little bit later. But Jesus is praying here in anticipation of his sending them out. And he's praying for them. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, and that pay attention to this, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us. So he's in preparation. In, now this is kind of a long passage here, but you can see Jesus giving this whole kind of the background and, and in essence saying, Father, everything that we have done together has been done in anticipation of this. And I'm praying for them as I send them out, and not only them, but to those, I'm also praying for those who believe in me through them. And that's us. So I don't ask only on their behalf, right? But also on our behalf. And then verse 21, what is it that he's praying? that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, thou in me, 
that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them and will make it known, and the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, this is just a lot, and I'm not going to break it all down for you, but I, the thing that I really want us to focus on there is all the in, you know, thou and me, I and them, them unified as we are. It, there's a lot of this just, it all kind of meshes together. And in fact, so much so that it's really difficult to even follow the string. You know, you, you get a a string of yarn. Well, I had a microphone, a string of microphone here. I was trying to figure out which one went to which microphone here. And and if you just try to follow it, it gets all tangled together. And that's an indication of that there is a oneness. There is a bigness. There's a coming together in such a way that it's hard to even just separate out grammatically all the individual strings here. That's really an indication of that unity that Jesus had in mind as he was praying for us. And I want to submit to you here that Jesus was praying for the church. This is really a prayer for the future of the church. He was anticipating his death and resurrection here that was about to come and this will be the foundation of the church and he's about to send out his disciples into the world not asking for them to be removed from the world but to be sent into the world and that God would do certain things in their midst including in our midst and the primary thing that would happen would be a unity amongst each other, and amongst the Godhead. That's the primary thing I want you to see there. And if you read that again on your own at some point, you go back and look at that. I just want you to see that unity between each other and between the Godhead, all together, bundled up. Now, let's bring that into the concept of the church. So last session, just by way of review, last session... I made the following points. I'm just going to review it here real quick. Three main points. The Greek word for church that, 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 that was used for church in the New Testament, we translated as church, was not a religious word. Today we say church, and it immediately has religious connotations to us. But that was not the connotation of the word that was used in the New Testament. It simply meant a group of people. It referred to a specific group of people, but that specific group of people was based on the context in which the word was used. So if you pulled the word out by itself and you use ecclesia, some people pronounce it as ecclesia, if you used that word, if you pulled it out, it wouldn't have any particular meaning without context around it. You wouldn't know which group that word was referring to. 
So the literal meaning, some scholars would define that as the called out ones, or, or I've also seen it, the designated ones. It's really just meaning a designation of a group of people, the designation of which is dependent upon the context in which the word is used. So you don't know what designation. Okay, non-religious, non-specific term by itself, and it required context to become meaningful. Now, we talked about, then what is this specific group of people? We talked about what group of people is the New Testament talking about? And we talked about how it had various scopes of meaning, similar to how family has various scopes of meaning. I could talk about my family, and you wouldn't know if I was talking about my daughters and my wife, or my siblings, my parents. We have a family reunion this summer for the Schoenberg family reunion. How many people do you think will be there? I don't know, a hundred and some, probably. There Are they all family? Well, yeah, within the context in which we're talking, that's a family. So. Church in the New Testament is very similar to that, has various scopes. But the defining characteristic of the group of people referred to as the church, what I put forward last time was uh, it's the presence of the life of Jesus Christ in the midst of the group that makes the group the Christian church. Sometimes that's a small group like us today. Sometimes it's the church in Corinth, or the church in Laodicea, or the church in Alexandria. Sometimes it's referred to, referring to the global church, the, and sometimes even the universal church that could include Abraham and Noah and the saints yet to come. But the distinguishing characteristic of who is in that group is if you go back to where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. That's a distinguishing characteristics. If they should gather, Jesus would be there. The church is represented by any group of people amongst whom Jesus is present when they gather. And the third point that I wanted to make last time is the church is not simply an institution or an organization. Basically, in the New Testament, the church is represented as a body. The most common analogy that is used in the New Testament is the body of Christ. Biblically, the church is considered an organism rather than an organization. And the reason it is thought of as an organism is because it contains life. The life of Jesus Christ in the presence of the church is the distinguishing factor that makes the church what it is. It's the presence of the life of Jesus Christ that makes the church the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot there, but you know, you can, I, I talked about that last time, so I don't want to dive into that too far. But since life is the primary characteristic defining that group, whatever that group is that's referred to as ecclesia, since that's the primary characteristic of the Christian church, then 
we should talk about life. What is life? And whenever I think of that question, what is life? I think of this really quirky, interesting person who had about six PhDs in of some form of biology, A.E. Wilder Smith. Remember that video? And he says, eh, what is life? And he, he said, and, and he starts talking about teleonomy. And if you look up teleonomy, the idea is that it is goal-directed or purpose-directed function. And so putting it in basic terms, if you think about, and I can't remember if he used the, this analogy or not, but I've come to use this analogy. What's the difference between a stick and a branch? Is a stick on the tree or on the ground? Typically, when we talk about a stick, you know, we're picking up sticks and things like that. We're talking about something that's no longer connected. It's just a stick. The branch, though, is still connected. And if the tree is alive, the branch is probably alive as well. So the idea, I mean, even young kids, you know, Naomi isn't here, I guess, now, but she would have our kids pick up sticks before we mowed. Right? And none of them tried to yank them down off the tree. <laughs> and the difference between a stick and a branch really is life. When we see a branch, it's alive. When we see a stick on the ground, it no longer has life. Okay? And we recognize that, but we don't really have a good definition for what that's about. But when you think about it, I don't know, at about sixth grade was, I think, when I remember being told about, um, in fact, I remember it quite vividly, the green, <laughs> green plants, they have chloroform and chlorophyll, thank you, and they produce oxygen with light and all of that kind of stuff. What's that called again? Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. Okay, and I remember... This would probably never fly. It's not PC today. But we were given little guppies. And we got to put little live plants in water. And they put them in a little baggie. And we had them out. And the guppies survived over the weekend. We had them out in the, in the room where it was warm. And light could come in in our sixth grade classroom. And everybody's guppies that came back, not everybody's, but most of them were still alive. And we got to feed them a little bit and stuff. And then we put them all in the closet. And we left for the weekend. And we came back and all the guppies were dead. Because they didn't have any oxygen. Even though the plants were in there. And that's how I learned about photosynthesis. Because guppies die without oxygen. And the green plants that we put in those bags with the guppies were producing the oxygen that they needed. But that needed sunshine to produce it. Okay, and so if those plants were dead, even with all the sunshine, they wouldn't have produced any oxygen. So scientists, well, they can't really tell you what makes up life. They can only tell you when it's present. And so the definition, the scientific definition of life is actually the concept that an organism is functioning the way it was intended to function. And you can see the systems at work. And so life is really the ability to take outside resources, 
convert it to internal resources that are necessary to continue to function. And that's part of the function of the organism. So, life is the functioning of an organism for its designed purpose. That's really what life is. You could break it down to say it is purposeful functioning. Life is purposeful functioning. Now, today, if you look that up, teleonomy and so forth in science books, because they don't believe in purpose, they say apparent purposeful functioning. But we know better than that. We know there actually was a purpose in all of creation. And so life is purposeful functioning. Now, today, I wanted to talk about the purpose and the function of the church. And you see the connection? The basic primary characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ is the life of Jesus Christ. And the church, therefore, has a purpose and a function. And when it is alive as an organism, there is purposeful functioning. That's why it's important to understand the purpose and the function of the church. So what is the purpose of the church? Let's do a little bit of uh, 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 definition here. What does purpose mean? Purpose means the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists. So we could say the reason for which it exists or the reason for which it was created. Let me ask a question here. Anybody can answer from where does life get its outside resources? Well, we would usually use the term habitat. If you take certain trees, for example, I remember again in sixth grade, that's a pretty significant year for me apparently, we had to study the different trees that grow at different elevations. I happened to live in an interesting part of the country where you go a little way south and you get down to about 2,000 feet of elevation, and a little bit north, and you get up to 11,000 feet elevation on Mount Humphrey. And we learned all the different trees in our area that grew at certain elevations. Now, you take a tree that was intended to be in the desert, or a cactus or something like that, and you put it up on Mount Humphrey, it doesn't survive because that is not its habitat. It's ha that habitat is not conducive to the purpose and function of that organism. Okay? So, habitat is the natural environment of an organism. And the reason I want to give you that term, habitat, is because I want to assert that the purpose for the church, the purpose for the ecclesia, the purpose for bringing a group together that Jesus had in mind, that he was praying for here, the purpose was to provide a habitat for the eternal kind of life that he was bringing to the children of God. We each, as believers, as children of God, have been given a type of life that is different than our mortal type of life. It's an eternal, an immortal type of life that will remain forever. That life we refer to as eternal life, 
that life needs to have a habitat that is conducive to it, and the purpose for which the church was created was to provide that habitat. And it's from the habitat that the life that we have individually in Christ Jesus derives its resources in order to grow and strengthen and perform the functions for which it exists. Now, let's just go back to the concept of habitat and trees. Let's say, for example, if you take a ponderosa pine tree, okay, it survives best at around five to 8,000 feet, okay? I mean, that's one of the things, but you find certain types of soil, which is conducive and so forth. If you take that and you try to bring it down to Phoenix, it won't have the resources that it needs in order to survive or to function uh, appropriately. It might be stunted and all of that, but that is the wrong habitat. So when it has the right habitat, it's not the habitat that is the resources, it's the habitat that provides the opportunity for the resources to be there. Okay, so in other words, the church itself is not the resource. It's the habitat in which the resource of the Spirit of God can actually function properly in order to provide the resources that we need as individuals to grow. Now, I don't have the time to break all of that down, but if you read, take, for example, Ephesians 4, and you read through Ephesians 4, you see that it is the basis of the church that provides the resources of the Holy Spirit that allows for that to function, I should say. Not provides it. It's the gift of God that provides it, but it's that base of the church is the basis for which it can function to bring about the maturity of believers. You just read through that chapter 4 and you'll see that that's the connection. The Spirit provides the gifts, the church provides the functioning, and the individuals are matured in the process. Okay, so the church is the habitat. That's the purpose for it. There's another purpose, so that's, that's as it relates to us, but there's one other purpose that you'll see in this prayer, for example, that Jesus gave. He prayed for the church, didn't use that word, but he prayed for the disciples and those who would believe through them that they would be unified, that they would, you know, he prayed for them, but that also something, you remember he specifically said, I'm not praying for the world. Do you remember him saying that? But he did pray that something would happen in the world through the church. And what is that? That the world might believe. The second purpose of the church that you will find throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, is to manifest the life of Christ on earth. That's the role of a body. You know, we have little Cedric, he isn't here now, but he was given a body, and that body, as long as it's functioning properly, his, his life is seen and shown, is made known and displayed through that body. And Lord willing, when he gets really old, 
and has many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and passes away, that body will no longer be demonstrating the life of Cedric, but the life of Cedric will continue on, and he will be given a new body in which he will continue to display life, Lord willing, and all of that. And that is the idea of the church as it relates to the world. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to manifest, to make known, to make evident, to display and demonstrate the presence of Jesus Christ on this earth, in this world, through the proper functioning of that body. So that's the purpose. That's what I would say is the purpose of the church. You know, you can say it in lots of different ways. It's to build us up in the faith. It's to encourage one another. It's a, all of that is the habitat. And to be a witness to the world is another word. We use witness to the world. In order that the world would believe. And let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. To bring glory to God. This is the manifestation of the presence of Jesus Christ who is truly present in this world through the church. So what's the function of the church? Okay, remember, life is purposeful functioning. Okay, so that's the purpose. And as I, I believe the, the Bible teaches, <laughs> what is the function? So let's... What's the term mean? What does function mean? It's the activity natural to or intended for a purpose or a thing. Now, you can talk about a thing as a hammer. What's the function of a hammer? Paul nails. Or pole nails, pole nails. If it's a claw hammer, right? Okay? It's an intended function, okay? We're talking about an organism here, if you will. And we now talk about, like, photosynthesis is one of the functions of a plant, a green plant, right? It's the activity natural to and intended for that organism. So when an organism has life, it is functioning as intended. So function has to do with activity, has to do with action. One of the universal functions of an organism is reproduction. Organisms reproduce. This is, I believe, also true of the church. It should be a natural experience to see churches organically reproducing. Now, what does that look like? Well, a natural functioning church, for example, will have natural functioning families that will continue to produce faith. But that's not the only thing. Now, one of the things that in, in our country, you know, we got a church on every corner, and everybody thinks what they know what a church is, and some people have rejected the church and don't want to have anything to do with church and all of this kind of stuff because of their perceptions. But you go into areas where this it's it's basically unknown. And take, for example, we've been sending these audio Bibles into Ghana, and the northern part of Ghana in particular where they're primarily Muslim, they really don't know anything about Christianity, and they get this audio Bible in their language, and they start listening to it, 
And guess what? Two or three people or, you know, a few people are listening and they start discussing it. And before long, there become a few believers. And a few believers, and, and it's just amazing stories how this happens, but a few believers that get together, they don't, they're not starting a church. They're just, hey, let's listen to this on, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays or whatever. Okay, so every day maybe at 4 o'clock or whatever. They're coming together and they're listening and then they're talking, and then pretty soon they're interacting, and some of them have come to believe in Jesus Christ. They've put away their idols. We have pictures of a man who became a believer through the audio Bible who's burning his idols. And you start finding out that they might not even call it a church, but there's churches springing up in these villages organically because life produces life. And the organism of the church, and, and here you might have a young man who has come to love the Lord and, and wants to share this with other people, and a natural result is a, a church springing up in another village a few miles away that he goes and brings this audio Bible and, and tells them what he's been learning. This is a natural expression of the organism, if you will, of the church. We should be seeing it just, it doesn't have to be put on. If you take a, a single cell organism, it naturally reproduces if it's functioning properly. It doesn't have to like work really hard at making it happen. And, you know, it isn't like swimming upstream, well, unless you're a salmon. But, you know what I mean? It's, it's a natural thing to have happen. The second thing that I believe is the function, the natural functioning of the ecclesia, is loving relationships. So, going back to this prayer that Jesus was praying for the soon-to-come church that he was establishing, is, first one, is reproduction. He says, I'm not only praying for these disciples, but for those who will come after them as a result of the natural reproduction of the church. I didn't say those words, but I'm asserting that that was the implication there. The other thing was that they would be in loving relationship. Loving relationship is a natural function of the life of Christ in his body. Just like our metabolism is a natural function in our body, loving relationships is a natural function in the body of Jesus on this earth. Let me say it a different way. The natural expression of the life of God is to have a large family in harmonious relationship. And that's what you see here in, in John 17 that they would be one as we are one, that as you are in me, I would be in them, and they would be one as we are one. Anybody know what Romans 8, 29 says? So this talks about God's intention. Everybody probably knows 8, 28, right? That all things work together. You know you know that part, right? right? Okay. 29, for whom... He foreknew, this is uh, uh, New American Standard, for whom he foreknew, he predestined 
He determined ahead of time for those, and I would say that a good paraphrase of this, going back to John 17, what did Jesus say? I'm not only praying for them, I'm praying for those who will come as a result. He knew that that life would reproduce. And he was praying that those who were to come, and notice here, he had an intention for them to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be, he, the son, might be the firstborn among the brethren. In other words, that he would have siblings. God foretold, foreknew, that there would be others coming, and he intended from the beginning that those others would have the same image as his first, his only begotten son, his only natural-born son. You and I were natural-born from our parents. Jesus was natural-born by the Holy Spirit, the only begotten son. But we are his siblings the firstborn of many brethren. That was God's intention. And because it is the natural expression of the kind of life that has been given to us to be in loving, unified relationship. The church is to be a natural habitat for that life to thrive. And the way that it thrives is through reproduction, passing on our faith, and loving relationship, joining the family of God and sharing in the divine nature. Now, people get a little bit freaked out about that concept, you know, and it's a little hard to understand what Jesus meant, that, you know, we're, again, that ball of yarn, you and me, me and them, them and you. Remember me said to his disciples that, my Father and I will come and make our abode in you. We'll, we'll, we'll come and dwell in you, the two of them. And then he talks about, I'll, I'll ask the Father and he'll send the Holy Spirit. And then he said, I don't leave you as orphans. Not only is he going to have to send the Holy Spirit, but I will come to you. And in, in Matthew 28, I am with you always. And it's just really hard to separate out all of these roles and that sort of a thing. But what we come to realize is what Peter said, in uh, 2 Peter 1.4, that we become the partakers of his divine nature. We have the same kind of life that is eternal, that God has, given to us, and that kind of life allows us to participate, to partake of, to take part in his nature. And that nature is to have and be in loving relationship. That is what the church is intended to function as. That is how the church is intended to function. Those connections are so important for us because as we talk about what should we be doing, you know, whether we you know, have prayer time, preaching time, teaching time, music, you know, instruments or no instruments or whatever, you know, all of these kind of debates you can have about how to do church, if you lose sight of the natural habitat that's necessary to sustain the life of Christ in the church, 
and the natural functioning of the church. It, it, those are, you know, all good and, and, and important things. The Bible tells us that we should be speaking to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. I mean, that kind of stuff. But it's not the purpose. It's the means. It's not the function. It's the, the, the facilitation of the function. And everything that we do, we should be evaluating. Are we seeing the reproduction? Are we seeing the loving relationship? Are we getting the kind of habitat that makes for these things? All right, let me pray. God, thank you for your plan from the beginning, intending that Jesus would have many siblings from mankind. And Thank you for allowing us to participate in that plan. Pray that you would continue to direct us and empower us and motivate us to be the church, to perform the functions that are intended for us, to fulfill the purpose for which you have called us out from among the world, the called out ones. Help us to see the need that we each have to participate in that and to allow each one of us, help us to allow each one of us to have that form of participation. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.